I'm the creature from the Vanta Black Lagoon. And I'm a sandworm porn connoisseur. And welcome to Planet of the Meerkats. It's actually the Planet of the Mirror hats because Dave and I got custom Planet of the Mirror Cat hats. And <laughs> they're very cool. <laughs> we got them from hood.com. And the hats are very nice quality, but very expensive. It's like Supreme stuff. You yeah, slap Supreme sure. on something and it pays, it's, it costs 10 times. So I was looking up Vanta Black. I thought that that was just a, a made up name, like a marketing name, because mm-hmm. it's a trademarked color. Yeah. Do you know, I should say, do you know what Vanta Black is? Isn't that the super, super black? Yeah, it absorbs 99.965% of light. Yeah. And, it, but Vanta actually is an acronym. It means vertically aligned nanotube array black. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds expensive. Sounds expensive, like these hats. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, what are we talking about today, Dave? We're doing kind of a review roundup of Timothée Chalamet repartee. He just had two big movies come out, and I think we're both fans. And yeah, we're going to talk about Dune and the uh, French Dispatch, the new Wes Anderson movie. I have kind of an embarrassing admission that before I'd seen the French Dispatch, you know, we talked about Timothy Chalamet quite a bit Mm -hmm. before, but I've never actually watched one of his movies or paid much attention to him. And I assumed he was French. <laughs> and he's not. He's, he, he has kind of a European look about him. I think people, I think he has one of those faces that people imprint on like what they want to. Like there's this whole discussion online about whether or not he's gay when he's actually had many girlfriends. But apparently he's very hot in the gay community. Before we get into these movies, I, I got to get something off my chest. Yeah. I took Nelly to see... Uh, the movie Ron's Gone Wild, mm-hmm. starring Zach Galifianakis <laughs> as a robot. And the movie was actually passable. Like, as far as movies goes, like, go, I was I was entertained. So, like, if you have to take your kids to see a movie, it's not terrible. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the premise of the movie is all the kids have this new robot that was unveiled by, like, a Apple slash Facebook company that can do, like, anything. And the main kid, his parents are poor, and they bought one from like that had fallen off a truck, and it's all broken. And, um, but at the beginning of the movie, it's almost like a dystopia. You have all these kids, and they're just like connected to the world to this robot, and it was really depressing. And then at the end of the movie, when like the conflicts resolved, it's basically the same thing. Like mm-hmm. the kids are still. It, it it would be as if like they wore iPhones on their faces all day. And that's, that's all that they saw the world through. But the, the guy who invented it, his name is Mark knock, knock. And I feel like they try and have it both ways because he's like the, the tortured inventor at the mercy of the corporate gods. And there's very, very much an analog between his company and Facebook. And I think what we found out about Facebook these last couple of weeks is like Mark Zuckerberg and the, decisions made by Mark Zuckerberg are essentially the reason why the company's become like an evil 
mm-hmm. <laughs> an evil corporation. Like, it's awful. I'm curious. Pre-Trump, the, you know, 2016 and earlier, Mark Zuckerberg was talked about as a potential Democratic candidate for president mm-hmm. or maybe Senate down the, down the road. He mm-hmm. was seen as kind of this ascendant figure who could cross over from tech into politics. And it's just amazing how quickly that narrative changed. And it makes it makes you wonder, like these decisions he was making, you know, questionable, anti-democratic, not seemingly good for business, but maybe not the long term health of his company. But but it's not like he just started making these terrible decisions like they've been they've been planting the seeds of what they've been doing since the beginning. And I think that's part of the problem when you have an organization with as much power as Facebook has that doesn't have any democratic responsibility. I mean, is as broken as our electoral system is, you can still vote people out. And they're still term limited sometimes. And with a company like Facebook, it's essentially unlimited power with zero regulation and they can do mm-hmm. whatever they want. What about their new governing board? I mean, we'll see if they end up having any real power. Yeah, it seems like in their advisory capacity, they, they have some limited power, but it can always be kind of overturned by Zuckerberg if he decides, which means they don't really have any power. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. There's a, a, a new... Dorm, this is another evil corporation rant. Mm-hmm. There's some new dorms being built at UC Santa Barbara. It's a giant building that, house, mm-hmm. well, that will house uh, 4,500 students. Mm-hmm. The building has, the, well, so the building was designed by Warren Buffett's business partner, Charles Munger. Mm-hmm. And essentially, none of the dorms have windows, and there's only two exits in and out of the building. That doesn't seem up to code. <laughs> Yeah, there's like all these problems with it. The the architect, like the the head architect at UC Santa Barbara, recently resigned mm-hmm. because she was opposed to the way they were doing this. And it's just it's frightening. Like you look at these things, it's just boxes, and everybody would get their sunlight through these artificial sun lamps. And you know, it, it feels like the movie Gattaca or something. So before we get into to Dune, so I just want to disclaimer: I actually have never read any of the Dune books. So I've read the first three books. There are six total that Frank Herbert wrote. Mm-hmm. And then there's like 20 that were written by his son with someone else that apparently aren't yeah. as good. I've been meaning to go back and 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 read the rest of the series because I hear it continues to be very good. I went and saw Dune last night and I watched the David Lynch version the night before. It was kind of interesting to watch the, them back to back. Have you seen the miniseries? I did. I, I enjoyed it at the time. But it's the same, like, I, I haven't actually been moved to go rewatch the miniseries either. So, <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm actually really interested in Frank Herbert. I, I did some research into him because he's a pretty fascinating figure. So his grandparents were socialists and they helped found this socialist commune in Washington state. And this was in the early 1900s. Mm-hmm. But his family lived like, you know, kind of off the grid. It was the Great Depression. And so he learned kind of these survivalist techniques and being from the Pacific Northwest, he encountered a lot of Native Americans, became friends with Native Americans, and became kind of an advocate for Native Americans throughout his hmm. life. And I think that his sympathy towards Native American causes was one contributing factor to him being very distrustful of government. Yeah, and you can also see how that informed sort of the anti-imperialist bent with the Fremen. He became a Republican. He donated to Republicans. He worked on Republican campaigns. He was like pretty complimentary towards Richard Nixon. I don't know if this is an apocryphal story or not. I guess he said something that Nixon, we should all thank Nixon because he showed us the failings of government. So in (laughs) 
it's this weird, weird sort of thing, right? You want Republicans to win so that they undermine government. You're actively rooting for the failure of government by advancing a certain type of government. Well, that's really become Reaganism, right? I mean, what, what Reaganism has become. You appoint incompetent people and then are like, why does the government suck when they can't handle things? <laughs> the policy goal is to have no policy, right? Well, and that's the thing. I think the whole idea of policy goals is kind of antithetical because people should be in this in this viewpoint should be allowed to solve the problems for themselves rather than the government doing that. Um, mm -hmm. I think part of the problem is it's with, with that viewpoint is it is something that could work if everybody was on equal footing, but we have all these social social norms and social realities that make everybody not on equal footing. And mm -hmm. what it ends up doing is just exasperating inequality. Frank Herbert was a, was interested in photography and became a photographer for the Seabees in World War II. And the Seabees were like a, like a, a construction arm of the Navy. Interesting. Yeah, he became a journalist. He wrote for a number of different papers, but among them was the Santa Rosa Press Democrat which I applied to when I got out of journalism school and then decided not to be a journalist. Uh, <laughs> he had a daughter <laughs> named Penelope. <laughs> nice. It's a good name. Shout out to Nellie's. He was very anti-Soviet. He thought the USSR was evil, but he was also opposed to the war in Vietnam. You know, he was kind of a <laughs> equal opportunity government hater. And he was actually, <laughs> I guess, a relative of Joseph McCarthy, which is interesting. Oh, interesting. I, don't, I think in the end, he was actually pretty critical of Joseph McCarthy's tactics. One I, can't, would hope. I, can't, I can't imagine anyone who <laughs> like pro-McCarthy. <laughs> one, of, one of the things that's refreshing about Frank Herbert is he's actually kind of living the life that he's advocating in his books. Um, you have other authors, authors like Orson Scott Card, who wrote Ender's Game. And Ender's Game is an amazing book that's very much sort of against xenophobia and... It's, it's just like a profound work of empathy. But then you look at him and he's like this crazy right winger. He's, you know, he funded Prop 8 that made gay marriage in California illegal. Like he's the exact wow. opposite of kind of what his books preach. <laughs> yeah. And that, I guess, I guess that's, that's an interesting way to look at creators, right? Like you can disagree with the work of art that's created, but I think one thing that you can, whether you agree with the viewpoint or not, that you can, you know, value is whether that person is consistent. Um, so Herbert took peyote. He became versed in Zen Buddhism and uh, Jungian psychology. Uh, and he was environmentalist. And I think we'll, you know, we'll get into the environmental themes of Dune. But one of his sort of journalistic pieces that he was writing was about uh, sand dune mitigation along the Oregon coast. He was interested in, in this sort of battle to conquer these sand dunes that kind of drifted into developed spaces so he started writing this piece in the late 50s and he never really published it but it became i think a big part of why he ended up writing dune he was watching society kind of fail to control nature and i think that really inspired the novel and you can see those themes in dune playing out on a planetary planetary scale well and it's interesting because they they hint at it in the movie but there's this whole kind of in the background subplot of dune where there is water on Dune, and the planet has the potential to be an oasis or like a a, a paradise. Mm -hmm. But there's a vested interest in keeping it hot, dry, arid, and full of sand, so the sandworms can thrive and keep producing the spice um, mm -hmm. 
that is become so important, mm-hmm. um, sort of at the to the detriment of the people who live there. Dune sort of imagines this distant future. Humans have advanced technology, but they live in these feudal societies, and and the spice that you're talking about is kind of the linchpin of the galactic society. It's this mm-hmm. psychoactive drug that can only be found in the sands of the planet Arrakis. You can kind of see the the illusions, right? Like the the spice is is oil, and mm-hmm. um, the the galactic sort of po- political machinations are are like the Western countries coming in and trying to extract the oil, and the Fremen are sort of your indigenous populations, right? The Fremen are like you know they're coded as like Bedouin or Persian or North African. They have this sort of pan indigenous pan-indigenous array of cultural practices, ecological philosophies. The linguistic characteristics are related to Arabic. One piece of Dune that always interested me is the amount of Islamic imagery that finds its way in a lot of the terms, you know, are like you, you mentioned Arabic, a lot of the terms and things that they use are Arabic. And a lot of the language around the chosen one uh, narrative are kind of seem as if they're they're based in Islam, which is is very interesting to me, just because that's not the perspective that these books tend to come at mm-hmm. uh, come from. And the other thing is the Bene Gesserit, like not only is there a chosen one narrative, but there it's it's not something that they're like sitting back waiting for God to do or something. It is mm-hmm. something that they're actively working towards. They're using. Mm-hmm essentially genetics and then they're laying the foundations of people waiting for the prophecy by sending sending their proselytizers into communities and sort of preaching their gospel so mm-hmm. not only are they producing the chosen one they are spreading the the news that the chosen one is actually going to exist and is needed so mm-hmm. they're kind of have closed the loop on religion they're like <laughs> they creating create- the mythology as they're they're creating the mechanism to like make that a reality. You know, the the first Dune book and the first Dune movie does have a little bit of an uncomfortable relation to the the white savior narrative where the the white person comes in, saves the indigenous peoples or the people of color, you know, sort of the Lawrence of Arabia slash, you know, something you see in so much fiction. But it really ends up turning it on its head. And you put in the notes that sort of depends how far you read. So yeah, uh, you know, Paul Atreides, spoiler alert, ends up winning and taking over Dune. But the cost of that is he essentially creates a holy war in his name that goes beyond his control. Mm-hmm. Um, it ends up ha- having like millions of deaths on his on his hands. And he knows this is going to happen as he takes mm-hmm. takes control. Yeah, I read a lot of think pieces and uh, articles about the white savior aspect of this and is now the time for this movie to be released and you know it's an interesting question you know what why is this movie being adapted now and why is it telling just this one part of the story i think it lends the impression that the story is about the white savior narrative but will most people look beyond (laughs) the plot of the (laughs) film adaptation to understand what herbert was really trying to get at and not not to say that like it's a the messaging is perfect or like that, that there wasn't that, that if it was written in today's time, it may, might have had different sensibilities, but you know, the, the book is about the failure of colonialist forces. It's about the failure of the white man to come in and just like subsume everybody and, 
and nature to his will. And the danger of putting power in one person's hands. There are tons of other themes here, right? There's, well, like environmentalism, libertarianism, uh, counterculture is a big theme. Um, and these books are, you know, hugely influential in popular culture. It's just mm -hmm. funny to like think about Star Wars. W if you don't know the order in which <laughs> Dune and Star Wars were released, you would see this movie coming out and you'd be like, wow, it's this total ripoff of Star Wars. Uh, <laughs> but it seems like it's the other way around. Well, and, you know, just I really and I'll say this, I really enjoyed the new version of Dune. I thought it was great. I took my daughter mm -hmm. Abigail to see it, who had no background in the books. She thought it was great. Um, her one sentence review is it was fantastic, but it needed more sandworm sandworm writing. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And uh, and that's where in the Lynch version, I think you you, you that you get way more sandworm writing. Um, yeah. And I'm hoping in in the second in part two of the Dennis Villeneuve Dune that we get more sandworm writing. I would I would hope so. Like it, yeah. that's a big part of the story. So <laughs> yes, yeah, so let's let's talk about the new one a little bit. Um, you know, it's very epic. It's very beautiful. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I was going into it thinking, how are they going to make like half of the novel into a two and two hour and 45 minute movie? Mm -hmm. You just do things very slowly. And that's the answer. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there's, <laughs> there's a lot of action, but also, you know, it's the pace is a little bit uh, drawn out, which isn't bad. Yeah. It's just, it's, it's contemplative, you know? Yeah. And I, I, I kind of found that, um, a lot of the stuff feels like set dressing in this first one, but is actually kind of setting setting the table for the sequel in interesting ways. So there's uh, Th Thufur Howitt, who was a mentat, and he was, they kind of barely touch on it in the movie, but mentat is sort of this person who has superhuman calculation ability. Mm -hmm. um, and the big houses all have one. And... Like, I thought they did a good job of setting that up. And I get the impression that the Mentats are going to have a huge part to play. And, mm -hmm. you know, everything with the Bene Gesserit ends up playing a huge role. And basically anything that had to do with the Bene Gesserit in the first movie will be extremely important in the second movie. I'm curious whether the second movie is going to end at the end of the first book or whether it will cover more ground. Because this part one seems like it took up like quite a bit more than just half the book. Um, yeah, so it may be that they're telling uh, an extended version of the story. Maybe. I mean, the director, Dennis Villanueva, he said that he, his dream, his like sort of vision is to direct three movies. So mm -hmm. two, one, two movies based on the first book and one based on the third book. So if that's the case, he could sort of commingle the end of the first book with mm, the second book. And I thought it actually did a really good job of simplifying what appeared to be a very complex plot without a lot of obvious exposition. Um, mm -hmm. I think that's one one place where it differs from the Lynch version, where in the Lynch version, there's a, a lot of people <laughs> just like needlessly talking about the plot or like rehashing <laughs> what just happened. And there's a lot of interior monologues. Like the, there's several times Kyle McLaughlin is like, worms, spice, <laughs> worms. <laughs> Spice. <laughs> what is the connection? <laughs> we got it. <laughs> now Lynch would actually be an interesting director if they ever go to the fourth one, because that's mm -hmm. where stuff gets really weird. Like people, 
merging with sandworms and all sorts of like really crazy trippy stuff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it'd be interesting to bring it back to Lynch after after that. That actually be set. really cool. <laughs> I I you know speaking of the Lynch version, I actually think it's it's it was really interesting and and great. You know, it has this has this bad reputation as being very kind of (laughs) (laughs) well it's 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 typical lynch it's like very out there but um it also feels unfinished in a lot of ways and i guess Mm -hmm. that you know there were a lot of uh battles with the studio around the length and a lot of the eccentricities of it and he had issues with the budget and had to like do some effects that were not super great but it has a lot of good things going for it we've got young kyle mclaughlin young virginia madsen Sean Young and Sting in a cod piece <laughs> score score by Toto, which is like the the wailing guitars, the wailing guitars while Kyle McLaughlin's riding a sandworm are just like epic. Uh, was that their inspiration for Africa? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe I don't know if Africa came before or after this, but that's a that's a good theory. We've got Patrick Stewart with who by the end of the movie has this quasi mullet. Patrick Stewart is like carrying a, a gun in one hand and a pug in the other hand. I mean, <laughs> classic, man. Uh, that's awesome. So good. Yeah. I need to rewatch it for the battle pug because I don't think I noted that last time I saw it. <laughs> and then, you know, this is this is my moment where I'm I'm Glenn Beck at the whiteboard scribbling out a paranoid schematic of doom and gloom. But there's this there's this moment uh, that kind of recurs this visual motif in the Lynch version of this white hand, fingers spread open, reaching. And it's kind mm-hmm. of against a black background, and it it looks exactly like the cover art of the first System of a Down album. <laughs> so I looked it nice. up, and that that is actually a that album cover is actually a poster designed from 1928. It was an anti-fascist poster created for the Communist Party of Germany. And the text on the original poster in German reads, a hand has five fingers. And with these five fingers, we grab the enemy. I can't help but think that there's that there wasn't like some tie from that image and that poster to the movie with this, the sort of power mm-hmm. grab, the symbology of like taking down, you know, the ruling powers. So. Well, the Harkonnens are totally fascist. Yeah. Um, and interestingly, the character that Sting plays is has not yet been in the new movie because mm-hmm. I think some people I was reading some reviews, they seem to think that Dave Bautista's character, the beast Rabin is the same as uh, the Sting Sting's character, Fade Rautha. And they're actually separate characters in the book. Mm-hmm. And the beast Rabin is, is essentially sent to govern Dune in a really, really, violent and totalitarian way and then the baron harkonnen was going to send in fade rotha to sort of be the savior so he's trying to preempt uh the the savior narrative by inserting his own his own person to be the savior and i have a feeling that we're you know eventually they're gonna cast fade rotha for the the new movie and we're gonna see that the the build up to that conflict in the, the next movie I read that it might be Tom Holland. Interesting. Yeah. Which I like Tom Holland as an actor. And I thought he was really good as Spider-Man. He sort of just seems perpetually young. And maybe maybe that'll work in the character's favor. I don't know. Yeah. 
but he like he's in a new movie based on the uncharted gaming series and the character of that movie is supposed to be like this gristled middle-aged guy and tom holland i know he's like in his mid-20s he still looks like he i mean that's one of the reasons he works so good for spider-man he still looks like he's in his teens yeah sting's character in the lynch version is sadistic and mad he's got this like really like live wire element to him and his hair is kind of crazy and um yeah you know he's just got this this vibe he, you know, the part where he's in a cod piece, he's like preening. He, he's, he's like, <laughs> he's almost like Mick Jagger or something, you know. And there's an element there that I just don't feel like Tom Holland really embodies that. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. We'll see. There, there was one aspect of the Lynch version that always bugged me, and I was glad that they didn't put it in this version. And I can't remember if it's in the book, but they kind of code Harkonnen is this predatory gay. Oh yeah. Like he's, he's essentially like has all these young boys around that he uses. He literally drinks their blood like, mm-hmm. <laughs> and they didn't, they, they dropped that in this version. And I was glad because that part always made me uncomfortable because I thought there was some subtext there that uh, was really bad. And I liked, I liked how they handled the, the whole blood thing differently, like a bathtub of blood. That's, that's gruesome enough. Totally agreed. Transitioning to French Dispatch, just a few other little notes here sure. uh, about the cultural impact of Timothy uh, Chalamet. <laughs> <laughs> so Grimes, Grimes' first album uh, is called Guidey Primes, mm-hmm. and it's obviously a, a Dune reference. So I, I'm wondering if she was on Spice when she married Elon. Probably. You uh, kind of have to be, right? The guy's a <laughs> little bit crazy. <laughs> <laughs> uh but dune has had like obviously a massive impact on popular culture it's everywhere yeah. think about like the sandworms and beetlejuice but there's a dune reference in moonrise kingdom which is my segue into the french dispatch interesting yeah apparently there's a part where they're i forget the main character's name the little girl in moonrise kingdom but apparently there's a part where she has a map and on the map is a map of arrakis <laughs> um <laughs> But anyway, French Dispatch. Let's let's. This is like I like putting these two movies together because it's like there's no there's no uh, connecting themes here. It's and I'm <laughs> I, and I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna admit I did not have a chance to see French Dispatch. It was oh, no. not showing. Okay. It was not showing around here last week. It didn't open here till Thursday, and I just haven't had a chance to get to the movie since then. Don't worry about spoiling it for me, because I don't think spoilers are the point of Wes Anderson movies. I'm not going to get into any of the major details here, because I just want to use this as a jumping off point. I thought it was really like Wes Anderson turned up to 11. Well, and I was reading an article about it was basically like snippets of interviews with a bunch of the actors that are in the movie that are sort of part of his squad that sort of pop up (laughs) Mm -hmm. in movie after movie. And, you know, one of the themes is like he is not only sort of in complete control as a director, but he keeps the aura of the movie going, even when they're done filming. And there was a lot of like dinners where a lot of the cast and crew would just go out together and kind of have a very Wes Anderson ish party. And, like everybody just seems like they get totally wrapped up and enveloped in the movie making process when he's doing it. And, and I think that that's something that really comes through in his movies. Like people seem really comfortable with each other and act well together. You sent me that article and I read it. I think it's, I think it's really a testament to like why Wes Anderson has had the staying power in Hollywood. If these people were getting paid what their market value is, these movies Mm -hmm. would cost $200 million to make. 
right? Yeah. These are huge actors at the top of their game that he's casting over and over in his movies. So you know that they're coming in. They're not getting paid sort of their market price. And they're doing it because they love his process and they love the products, mm-hmm. the yeah. artistic products that he's putting out. I've been reading a lot about the French Dispatch because despite the fact I haven't seen it, I really, really want to see it. And so I've been sort of supplementing it with reading about reviews and stuff. And one of the things that strikes me is it seems to be based on so many different things, right? There are like the magazine seems to be loosely based on the New Yorker and Jeffrey Wright's characters based on James Baldwin and a couple other writers. And, you know, all that just seems really interesting to me because when you view a piece of art that you really like, it makes you want to look deeper. And I've always found that's a really good way for me to explore new authors and new movies and things is, Oh, you know, I liked this and it draws influences from such and such. I'm going to check out such and such. Yeah, agreed for sure. I think it's one of the reasons why I think we all kind of got into Wes Anderson is that it brought you into a world that you were curious about. You know, there are references that you were curious to check out. You know, those early Wes Anderson films, you know, we were probably in our early 20s and there was a lot of music that I discovered through Wes Anderson because it wasn't Mm -hmm. music that my parents listened to. It wasn't music that we listened to together with our friend group in high school. And so it was like, oh, I feel like it was through the um, Life Aquatic soundtrack that I discovered Devo. I think people forget, looking at things now, right, in in the world we live in, everyone kind of knows about everything. You know, it's pretty easy to, like, learn about the history of music or, like, learn about the history of film. Like, you just go on the Internet and everyone kind of, like, shares that information around. But, you know, in the late 90s, early 2000s, even though the Internet was around, it, it wasn't quite as easy to, like find out about cool stuff. Wes Anderson really did a service for people by giving us a cheat sheet. It was a reference sheet to find out cool stuff that you might not have heard about yet. Well, I, th- I think there were there were two voices that I remember in the 90s that really did that. And one was Wes Anderson and the other one was Quentin Tarantino. I think they both came came to the artistic process with all of their influences on their sleeve and they wanted to sort of mimic and copy and update and play with all these things that just meant a huge amount to them in interesting ways. And they did it in such a way that it made other people interested. I mean, Mm -hmm. nobody gave a crap about seventies grindhouse movies until Quentin Tarantino came along and made a movie in that tradition. Right. Um, And yeah, I, I, I do think it's, it's a really interesting way to learn about new, new experiences, right? Mm -hmm. There's so much art out there that, we still haven't experienced. There's also like a really lazy strand of uh, criticism that sees an artist like being very upfront with their influences and actually integrating them into the, into their work and, and being critical of that. I'm, I, you know, I think Tarantino, there's a lot to criticize him about. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, there's, there are elements in his work that I think are problematic, but I don't think he's ever hidden the fact that like he's celebrating the things that, were exciting to him and he's integrating mm-hmm. them into his films as an homage and that like to him that's not a negative like that is that's the the heart of creation which is like taking an idea and evolving it and making it better it's his um, raison d'etre yeah exactly <laughs> uh, um, the contrast to this i think would be the wachowskis when they made the matrix movies mm-hmm. and 
while I really love the first Matrix movie, I think they had, you know, one of the things that people always cited about it was how it was so deep and it touched on all these different philosophical concepts and things like that. And when they, when they did the second and third movies, I think it was exposed as being really on the surface. And it was almost like they read the backs of a bunch of philosophical works. <laughs> and, yeah. um, and I was really disappointed because it was like, it felt like some, they were going to go really deep into this stuff and ended up, you know, not really going, going past the surface. I'm, I'm excited though for matrix four, because maybe they'll correct some of the, the things that went off the rails for two and three. Well, I am too. And one thing that kind of interests me is the whole red pill, blue pill thing is something that's been embraced by the right is, is in, take the red pill and get out of the liberal bubble and learn how the world really is. Mm -hmm. And then on the flip side of that, both the Wachowskis are transgender and be transitioned to being female since the matrix movies came out and are very much on the opposite side of that. And how, how, if, if at all, is that going to be addressed in the new movie? I don't know. Mm -hmm. I'm seeing the pills used as marketing. We were just at the movies the other day and there was a poster. It was all white and there were two pills, a red pill and the blue pill. No title of the movie, but it was a Matrix yeah. movie. So it's obviously still important, right? Yeah, I hope that they subvert it somehow. We'll see. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I noticed that too. I was like, oh, wow, what's this going to be like now in this sort of like post-Trump world? And it's only directed by one of them. The other, the other yeah. I don't know which which one. I think, I think, it's, this, Lana I think it's only Lana. It. Going from French Dispatch without going into the plot, um, you know, I think the reason one of the reasons why I liked this movie so much is it it's an anthology, which I think I love anthologies. It inspired me to like start watching some anthologies that I hadn't seen before. I watched uh, Jim Jeremish's Night on Earth, mm -hmm. which is a it is a story of taxi drivers oh, and sort of the relationships that evolved during a taxi ride. And it's told in five locations around the earth uh, in the same night. And it's fantastic. But the French Dispatch is, is an anthology and it's told almost like a magazine. It's mm. three three articles uh, in in an issue of the French Dispatch magazine. So I love I love that style of storytelling. But it you know for me you know I I went to journalism school and I was I this movie made me nostalgic for this writing career that I never actually had. <laughs> this was the the sort of like imagined world of this magazine is like why I wanted to be a writer. And by the time I graduated, you know that world had long since ceased to exist. <laughs> And the newspaper industry, you know, was forever changed. And, you know, obviously newspapers still exist, but they're shadows of their former selves and magazines still exist. Mm -hmm. But and we can argue about whether the New Yorker is the same type of magazine that it was in the era that Wes Anderson is so lovingly referencing. But I just I just look at this movie and it makes me really sad for the landscape of journalism and the landscape of media. Um, yeah. And just like the the dwindling ability of the masses of people to like interpret news and to seek out truth. It's just this kind of a depressing landscape. On that note. <laughs> um, so I have a question for you about the New Yorker because I've, yeah. I've subscribed off and on throughout the years. I, I subscribe right now through Apple. I'm always like, I only read like half the magazine. Right, because a lot of it is literally about New York 
And I was wondering, does that part of it hold interest for you? Or are you there just for like the writing? I don't really read the shouts and murmurs or the uh, talk of the town. So mm-hmm. like the talk of the town section at the at the front is usually about New York. I used yeah. to read that, but I, I don't anymore. I, yeah, there's certain parts I don't read. I you know what I what I like about it is the long form journalism. I like. Yeah. And, and, you know, there's a lot of places that do this well. And, you know, there are aggregators now, which will help you find great long form journalism. But I love going deep into a story. And I think what the French Dispatch does well is that it kind of highlights this style of I don't know if this would technically fall into like new journalism, you know, the style in the 60s where that kind of came up in the 60s with you know the right stuff mm-hmm. and in cold blood where the the writers really inserted themselves into the story more. There yeah. was this idea back, you know, back in the day that you were objective, right? And you were you were not a character in the story and in the mid-century that started to change. And I think in this movie it actually it is about that. It's about these writers and who they are as people and how they how they are part of the story, whether they want to be or not, right? And that's what I've always kind of loved about this style of journalism is acknowledging that you're a human being that's in this relationship with the subject. Reminds me, what you're talking about reminds me a bit of gonzo journalism where, mm-hmm. you know, there's no claims of objectivity and the journalist is very much a part of everything that's happening. Um, and... I wonder, because at the end of the day, you know, you're only told so much about something by the facts, right? And if you really want to get to the truth of the situation and really understand what's going on, do you need to have perspectives from both inside and outside um, and to have people step in and make themselves part of the story in the telling of that story? I Yeah, I agree. You look at the way most people get their news now and it's a lot of it is opinion, right? So you talk Mm -hmm. about fake news and it's, it's opinion. So there's a fine line between being, being a guide to -hmm. help someone understand a topic and inserting your opinion. That's not based on anything, you know, so much, so much news now is like, has to be done super cheaply. Like we're not paying, we're not paying reporters and, and journalists hardly any money. And then most of these people are just like hacks, you know, they're, <laughs> they're just like political hacks one way or the other. Right. And so things aren't well reported. A lot of it is hearsay. It's all about the clicks, like get the opinion out there, get the clicks, get the money. And unfortunately, like we talked about with media literacy, literacy, people, people kind of just take what they read at face value. I remember when, I think it was when you were in journalism school, you wrote an article about, uh, I think it was, kill bill and how if you looked at the press kit that was sent out about the movie the language from it was mirrored in so many different reviews to the point where you question whether the reviewers had even seen the movie <laughs> wow good memory i did yeah i i i think there's a there's groupthink at work right and this has been i think around for years but and we're seeing it again with with reviews of dune like where people there's there's a point to be made about it and someone makes the point and then everyone else just makes the same point because it's easier to do that than to like think about your own point or to yeah. like do the research. We're just losing we're losing the ability to to analyze what we read and say, oh, this 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 author is making a point, but but clearly they're they're not super informed. So I'm going to use this as one data point and then mm-hmm. read other things. Instead, people are like, I'm going to latch on to this person's <laughs> opinion because they wrote an article about it. And now that is my opinion yeah. and I don't need other data points. 
This is mm -hmm. the this is the thing that I now believe. I'm going to kind of get into the education system here, right? <laughs> yeah. I wonder how educated people come out of the education system, whether it's a high school graduation or a college or grad school or whatnot. And, you know, I, I remember, and I, 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 the details of this escaped me, but if somebody was giving a speech to like alumni and they were talking about how people were not informed and not in being incurious and everybody in the audience is like raising, like kind of nodding their head. And he's like, how many of you have read a book in the last year? And like only half the audience raised their hand. And I think one of the failures of our education system is that it bases so much on grades that grades and sort of going through the, the, the process that they've laid out that it doesn't breed curiosity. Um, and the worst thing you can do is go to college and leave thinking that you know everything that you need to know. Mm -hmm. You need to still be curious about the world because the world's ever changing and there's no way you could know everything that you need to know. Mm -hmm. You need to keep yeah. reading books, watching film, paying attention to what's going on around you. I think people look at folks who read a lot of books and they're like, oh, you know, I wish I read more. Well, it's like you can read more. It's it's a matter of finding something that interests you. Uh, and then just pursuing it. I get it. I'm not trying to be critical of people because I'm definitely lazy. I, it's mm -hmm. been a while since I've read a book cover to cover either, but we're a busy culture and we expect instant gratification and, and a book requires an investment of time. Well, and books and, aren't the only way to, to learn about things, right? Yeah. There is journalism, there's, mm -hmm. there's film, there's all sorts of things. It doesn't have to be a book. I was just using that as an example. I think the bottom line of what my thesis would be is that you know, I, I think we'd all be better off by devoting more time to finding various data points for whatever mm -hmm. we support. And I think that's what good journalism can do it is open that window for you to consider something that you hadn't considered before. And the less good journalism we have, the less that we are able to, to help people on that journey. You know, if you're a conspiracy theorist, you can look and say that maybe that's the goal. <laughs> keep, keep people, you know, fighting amongst themselves, keep people dumb so that the people who are in power can, can keep more of that money to themselves. Uh, and this gets to another depressing point. If you think about like the Sinclair Broadcast Group, they own 193 local TV stations and 100 markets. They package their segments that are homogenized and mostly opinion based and they send them out. And that's what people that's what those stations play. So you look, there are plenty of, you know, videos online. If you're curious about it, you can go and see all these local stations from around the country play the same news package. <laughs> Ever wonder why that happens? Like people just people just take that at face value and it's like there, there's there's an agenda there like think about it I don't know. Mm -hmm. absolutely I'm off, my, I'm off my sandbox well but i mean when yeah when a, a giant media conglomerate owns so much of what people see it becomes easy for them to control the opinions of a lot of people mm -hmm. i was just reading slightly off topic i was just reading a book about uh ufo conspiracies mm -hmm. and sort of when it got going, there's hints of something called MJ-12. And then there's this guy, Bill Moore, who reportedly was given information from the Air Force about this. And it ended up, it was ended up being this thing called Majestic 12, where after Roswell, all these, ex, these 12 experts were called in to consult with Harry Truman 
and it was sort of like this confirmation of everybody's conspiracy about conspiracy theories about Roswell. Mm -hmm. And then he came out like a, a dozen years later and was, and was like, no, none of this was true. I was complicit. All this information was being fed to me by the air force. And, you know, it's people accepted it. People in the groups accepted it because it confirmed what they already wanted to believe. And it just destroyed people's world worldviews when he came out and said this. Mm -hmm. And, uh, it also kind of is indicative of how information funneled through the right point can be disseminated in a huge in a huge way amongst a lot of different people, and you know misinformation can be funneled that same way, and it's hugely powerful. You have to, my opinion is that you have to limit your intake of other people's opinions because you start exactly. to see those as facts. One of my rules of thumb for journalism is: are they willing to admit that they're wrong? And, you know, expertise, as much as it kind of gets laughed at sometimes, you know, it means something. If somebody's been studying something their whole life, even if you don't agree with them, listening to what they have to say can be really helpful because they might have some some good insights. And right now, everything's so polarized. It's this or that, and everybody sets up on either side. But I think a lot of these issues are really on both sides of the fence. Oh, I agree. I think that there's, I think that it's really unhealthy to be uh, only read sources on the left and only read sources on the mm -hmm. right. And I actually think we've talked about this before, like we were texting about it this week, but I think the left right dichotomy is, is pretty much bullshit anyway, because it, to me, it's really about power versus no power. And, yeah. you know, if you're, you've got people who are, you know, in the same station in life on both sides of the political aisle and they're being manipulated by the people who have the power. My, my point of view would be don't, don't fall into your news silos, like mm -hmm. read, read voraciously all over, consume, consume all kinds of information and free yourself from that dichotomy. Well, one of the big differences I think between somebody like Biden and somebody like Trump is Trump tends to make people have to believe everything wholesale that he's saying. Whereas the, the folks that are supporting Biden are much more likely to be critical of Biden you know, the left is a lot, uh, a lot more heterogeneous than the sort of cult of Trump that's been built up on the right. As a progressive, I feel very frustrated at the lack of ability for the Democrats to, to do anything progressive mm -hmm. <laughs> and to really like pursue their policy goals in the, with the same unity and zeal, which with the Republicans tried to, uh, tear things down. Yeah. What I think is to your point is if you look at the left, like one of the reasons why we're not getting anything done is that various viewpoints are allowed and actually encouraged. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think that unfortunately in this media environment, that's the story there is that, you know, Dems in disarray all the time. But I think it, I think it's to your point, which is that there's a there's a lot more there's a there's a culture that allows criticism. Mm -hmm. and allows uh, there to be this battle of viewpoints. And sometimes it doesn't lead to anything. But is that inherently better than a culture where everyone has to toe the line? And I guess our opinion is yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, one thing that absolutely disgusted me at the Republican convention for 2020 was they essentially gave up on having a platform and their mm -hmm. platform became whatever Trump says. Yeah. Which is what the hell? Like, <laughs> yeah. 
Like, yeah, this, it's like have a have this a is spine. Not gonna age well. <laughs> yeah. Have a have a spine. Ha, be as a person. Like have have some integrity to like look at the world and say I I would like to see the world this way, and I think this is the way to get to it. And then and then you find avenues to support that rather than just like outsourcing yourself to some rich guy <laughs> who doesn't even have any consistent beliefs. Like, I don't, I don't understand it at all. It's like any, anyone yeah. who is willing to outsource their entire viewpoint on the world. It's like, you've, you've just like basically said that you, you don't care. Like you've, you've, you've abdicated your duty as a citizen. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> we oh, got, this got heavy. We got into the <laughs> politics zone today. <laughs> we got to get back in the no politics zone. I don't know. Are we still in the no po- no politics? I don't zone? know. I'm feeling a little bit waffly about that. I don't mind jumping yeah. into politics. It's not like right. uh, we have a huge listenership that we need to preserve. Exactly. <laughs> we can do whatever we want. Yeah. I really hope that you're able to go see French Dispatch this week. Because I me do too. Because to I really want to see it, and I want to see it in the movie theater. I've come to find that I really value the movie theater experience. I like going to the movies. It's something fun I can do with my daughters. I don't know that either one of them would care to see a Wes Anderson movie, but <laughs> I did go see it part two with Abigail on Friday night. Nice. Which that's a pretty intense and freaky movie. And I was impressed that she, uh, she soldiered <laughs> through that. <laughs> I have been the creature from the Vanta black lagoon. And I'm a sandworm porn connoisseur, which with Dune coming out and being as successful as it is and Rule 34 existing, I'm thinking I'm going to have a, uh, a whole lot of sandworm porn to consume here soon. <laughs> On that note, <laughs> <laughs> see you later, buddy. Take this care, man. This has been Planet of the Meerkats. Wow, wow. The Meerkats are David Garrison and Neil Fries. Our theme song is by the one and only Tawny Frogmouth. You can subscribe to Planet of the Meerkats wherever you get your podcasts, and you'll find links to all of our social accounts at planetofthemeerkats.com. We're trying to send a little old-fashioned positivity into your ears, so your support means a lot to us. Thanks for listening. <laughs>